Today we are talking to Ran Fishkin, the co-founder of SEO Moz, and we discuss how he got his nickname Wizard of Moz, the future of SEO, and his new book Lost and Founder. All of this right here, right now on the Modern CTO Podcast. Here we go. This is the Modern CTO Podcast. So probably the most common question ever, I got to know the backstory of your amazing nickname. <laughs> well, you know, you have a company named Moz. You you can't abscond with something that's not a pun. You got to lean into that, man. <laughs> no, uh, so my wife came up with Wizard of Moz actually when Moz was still called SEO Moz. Mm-hmm. And I think it was a um, a reference to two unusual uh, abilities. Well, well, one reference is obviously Seattle is called the Emerald City. So Wizard of Oz made sense. Right. Uh, and then the second one is uh, I have two strange superpowers. Well, one's not so super anymore. Uh, I used to be able to take down websites by tweeting them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, now server technology has gotten way better. And so, you know, they can handle a burst of a few hundred visits simultaneously, but... Uh, that wasn't the case back in like 2008, 2009. Uh, the second one was, uh, you know, just an ability to to rank websites in Google, um, which I'm, right. I'm less of a full-time hardcore professional SEO these days. So, No, I remember you. Cloudflare definitely thwarted you, right? <laughs> you can't take the websites down anymore. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I mean, there's some that, that still uh, get brought down. I, I did notice Martha Stewart has that ability. She tweeted a link to... Uh, my wife's blog, everywhere.com. And yeah, Martha Stewart sends, you know, tens of thousands of visits uh, in a minute. And that actually did crash the site. Yeah, I remember it was about 13, 15 years ago. I got an email from Oprah Winfrey's like technical producer that said, just wanted you to know that the show is going to air tomorrow. And uh, you should expect between like a hundred thousand and three hundred thousand unique visits, you know. <laughs> and we had to go uh, talk to, I think at the time it was like HostGator or something, and get them to prepare for it. Oh wow, geez. Yeah, they had a whole sheet. They had a whole when the producers reached out to us, they had a whole checklist of items because whenever they mention someone's website, these things happen. So they they prepare us for it. It's amazing. If only you could measure that referral traffic. <laughs> There's no, uh, it doesn't come with a source. Um, well, long story that I won't get into, but uh, Geraldine and I were on Oprah's show many years ago. What was that, 2008? And yeah, the producers there were very strict, very regimented. You know, Oprah herself is super professional, right? Mm-hmm. And polished as all get out. It was an interesting experience for sure. What was the topic? Uh, I had proposed to my wife on a television commercial. And they wanted uh-huh. to have us on for their Valentine's Day episode. Uh, and so we said, well, you know, we weren't giant Oprah fans, but um, we had really wanted to go to the Museum of Art in Chicago. So we said, well, if you fly us in a day early and we can go to the art museum, we'll, we'll come out. <laughs> and they agreed. And so, yeah, we went on the show. Oh, that's fantastic, man. I haven't, yeah. I haven't been on Oprah. I don't think I have any plans. Is, is, is she even still doing the show? I don't think so, no. No, she's just like, instead of the show, I will own a network. And that's what I will do. <laughs> and run for president. It's going to be great. Oh, she's going to run for president now. Well, I can't decide if I want her to or not. I'm not sure. 
that what if what if our country had like a series of TV show hosts becoming president? It would be like that movie Idiocracy or what is it called? Yeah, Idiocracy. Yeah. Oh man, I'm I'm scared because I'm living through a poorly imagined future. <laughs> um, okay, so you've got a new book. I want to know what's going on with that book. Sure. Is it out yet? Yeah, it just uh, it just went up for pre-orders on Amazon actually. So it's coming out April 24th. And the title is Lost and Founder, uh, Painfully Honest Field Guide. Uh, and you can, I think if you search for just Lost and Founder book, you'll find it. Painfully Honest Field Guide to the Startup World. So what do you, what are like the big core pillars of, of your experiences like writing that book? Hoo-hoo, of the experience writing the book. Yeah. Well, I certainly was... You know, I went into it with eyes somewhat open. Uh, my wife had written a book as well. And so, you know, I knew a little bit of what that was like uh, from watching her go through the process. But it was definitely um, much longer, more intense, and much more formal than I expected. Uh, if you have experience with kind of the stereotype or archetype of what, you know, publishing a book was like in the 1960s or 70s or 80s, right, from watching movies or TV. Uh, it's actually not that different. Right? You build a close relationship with your editor. You're having late night phone calls. You've got deadlines, and there's there's tons of changes, and it goes through, you know, layers of fact checking and research and all this kind of stuff. So it was a compared to the books I'd written previously for Wiley and O'Reilly, uh, which were very much just write it, it gets copy edited, it's it's published. Uh, mm -hmm. This was, you know, this felt like a true tortuous writing process, which I actually enjoyed quite a bit. And what was the total length of time from like start to finish? So I pitched publishers basically with an outline or with a, uh, you know, a document that included an outline that I put together with my agent. Uh, and that was pitched in January of 2016. Oh, wow. And basically signed a deal, I think in March of 2016, had a finished rough draft uh, at 10.30 p.m. on December 31st, 2016. And so the last year has been kind of the massaging of that rough draft and updating, editing, you know, the whole publishing process, which it kind of shocks me that it takes a year, but it does. Is it a long book? No, I don't think so. I, I would say it's pretty average length for a business book. I think around 300 pages, but reasonably reasonably sized type font and spacing and a good number of images in there as well. Did you do the Audible? Not yet. I actually haven't heard from them about the Audible. I'm a little nervous about doing that. You've got to. Quiet room for you know four days reading your own book. It's a little awkward. No, I'm a big fan. So I, I consume Audible at scale, right? And the best ones are when the authors do them. I mean, I kind of want like a Steve Buscemi or Alec <laughs> Baldwin. <laughs> you get those guys to read my book. That's hilarious. Yes. Or William Shatner. There you go. Oh, God. Oh, Shatner. Jeez. <laughs> um, yeah. So I like it when the, I was talking. Do you know Marty Kagan? No, I don't know. Oh, he's this like really popular uh, UX uh, author. Oh, talks okay. about like building products. He's the Silicon Valley product group. I mean, they did like 
eBay, like every every big product they've had their hands in, okay. um, designing like the part of the user experience and stuff. Uh, so we had we had him on the show, and he has like a a best selling book called um, Inspired: How to Create Products Customers Love, mm-hmm. and he, he like works with Envision and all the big you know Slack and all those people. Yeah. Uh, so they, he had a ten year anniversary, and they did a rewrite of it to update it, and he came on the show. He said that the publisher didn't want him to do the voiceover. I was like, Marty, come on, man. That's the best. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I know Geraldine had to fight with her publisher to be able to record her own audio version. They do like to hire voice actors. Uh, and I think that's probably because it's more professional and polished. Those people are really familiar. They can probably get it done more quickly. Uh, and I suspect a lot of authors are not you know, don't have phenomenal voices, don't have uh, tremendous, you know, variation and flux in their intonation and their tone. So, yeah, I can see. You it. have a beautiful voice, Ryan. Oh, you, you guys, come on. You do. This is hey, it's fun. beautiful. I'm like, I was like, I heard your voice and I was like, uh, Jake, what's that angel? Who, who, who is that? And he's like, it's Rand Fishkin. I was like, get him on the show. Now I was like, call Jenny, have Jenny get him on the show. We got to make this happen. But you, I mean, Joel, you must, you must have that experience of where you listen to yourself yeah. and you think, dear God, I sound like that. Who would want to hear that? No, I love me. <laughs> <laughs> no, here's, here's the thing. Of course, at first, right? So it was real difficult at first. And then I ha- I'm one of the people that like, if you own a bakery and you're making cake, you got to eat the cake. So I listened to the podcast. Mm. And I, that's how we incrementally make it better. Like right now we're working on, um, an Alexa, a briefing because we want to get, Oh, thanks. Alexa, stop. Uh, (laughs) There we go. So, uh, uh, we were working on our Alexa flash briefing and what we do is we actually make variations. Have you, have you used them at all? Do you have an Alexa? I do. I'm scared to admit it, but I, I actually don't trust that thing, so I don't keep it plugged in. <laughs> yes, you would be great with Christian Sassier. We had a guy on the show, and, and um, he's a security expert, uh, specifically with blockchain, and he was talking about how he he does the same thing because he wants the voice system to come out that keeps it locally, so it's not actually on servers of anyone else's because yeah. he doesn't want the data breached. I don't trust where that audio file is going to end up or how it's going to be used or how it can be reused to construct something that I never said through understanding and and listening to all the words that I say. I'm just, I'm not a big, I don't put a whole lot of faith in uh, Amazon's privacy. (laughs) All right. I'll text Bezos, tell him to get on top of it. Be like, dude, you got to do better. Yeah, better if he doesn't know I exist. Let's just keep it better. Okay, so I won't text him then. Yeah, that's well, it's, it's pretty have, easy. I've been in restaurants where he's in there a few times in Seattle. So it was awkward, right? Yeah, you just like, because he knows what's on your Alexa when it is plugged in. You just can't yeah, look at him in the eye. on his too, right? It's, it's all world domination. Did you see the, um, well, I know, especially after he, who's the guy in X-Men who's bald and in the wheelchair? Professor Xavier. Yeah, Professor Xavier. Like he's 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 getting more of a dubious Professor Xavier look compared to his like 1995 interviews where he looks like a geek. Yeah, he definitely went from Bill Gates to like 
well, now he's all buffed up. I mean, his arms are gigantic and yeah, you know, he looks like he could bench press a bouncer. With Alexa, she's, she has a motivational skill and, and she helps him work out. She speaks to his muscles at night. She does grow larger. (laughs) I, uh, I wrote a book and it was my first book and it was, uh, super interesting but here's in it. Here's what I uh, took from it. So I was so nervous about what people would think. That's how the podcast got started, by the way, was the Ooh. book. Okay. So I was talking with people. We were having these conversations over and over and over. I work with like VC firms and build products and apps, all this stuff. So I kept having these CTO conversations over and over. So I put them in writings and I started writing and then they eventually turned into these conversations. I wanted to get a bunch of other CTOs involved with... Um, writing the book so that I didn't look stupid when it came out and get flamed by everyone. <laughs> so then those conversations turned into, we recorded them and then that turned into a podcast and then boom, before we know it, uh, we have 70,000 like CTOs and lead developers. That's kind of our audience of who listens to this. So going through that process, I wanted to make sh- see what the world thought of other than just my 30 plus CTO friends. So mm-hmm. what I did was I actually released like, summarized versions of the chapters as blog posts and then ran ads against them to see which ones were popular and what the most popular parts were and where people would analyze like where I left stuff out or good points to add in. Fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. That's wonderful. Very, very crowdsourced solution. Right. But I didn't, I didn't present it to them as that. Cause it would be like the whole issue with like, if people think they're giving their opinion, it's a whole different mm-hmm. world. I just did like micro blog posts and then saw which ones were, were most popular and then did an edit of the book, included a lot of stuff that would handle different people's perspectives. And then now we've just got it through formatting and this week we should get the sign off and go to print. And it's been about a year. Wow. So, well, congratulations. Yeah. Uh, who are you using to publish? Uh, his name is Joel Beasley. <laughs> That's me. I'm just self-publishing it. All right. Yeah. Interesting. Well, I'll be fascinated to hear about that. I, I, I sort of had considered a bunch of options, including the self-publishing and other ones, but yeah, eventually figured it, I just wanted to experiment, right? And I thought, well, I've made a lot of stuff myself on the web and promoted it. I'd be really interested to see what the classic publishing process is like. And um, so, yeah, I've been working with Penguin Random House, which is a classic old school, you know, big five publisher and really interesting experience. But yeah, looking forward to hearing your story too. It's all about what's interesting for you too, because you have to put in the work and go through it. Right. Yeah. The, the the financial model is definitely very odd with traditional publishing. It's um yeah different, super different. It it seems like it makes no sense. Then when you dig in, you sort of understand why it works the way it does and has these sort of anachronisms attached to it. But yeah, fascinating. Are there still bookstores? Mm-hmm. Like- uh, you know what? One of the weirdest things is. Uh, so Amazon, you know, between whatever it was, 1997 and 2011, I think took about 60% of the book sales market, maybe a little less than that, 55%, something like that. Uh, what's crazy is that uh, traditional bookstores experienced a you know, significant decline in sales over that period, but have almost recovered. And so Mm. basically, if you were to look at what were total book sales in 1999 and what are total book sales, physical book sales in physical bookstores, you would find that they're not very different. Most of the difference is like Barnes and Noble and Borders and a couple other of the big chains, but independent bookstores have actually been growing 
There, there are more of them now than there were 10, 15 years ago, which is just incredible. It's, uh, it's sort of an amazing thing. So they get you on the shelves. Yeah, yeah, they get you. Yeah. I mean, Penguin Random House certainly gets you on shelves, absolutely. Um, you know, what percent of my audience, right, of the, the world of tech entrepreneurs and startup people and, and web marketers uh, who, you know, are this book's primary audience, I, I, I suspect a great deal of them are going to buy online through Amazon or Kindle. I buy online through Amazon and then through Audible. Sometimes I buy the physical book. Like usually when my friend gives me, I have like, I have one friend who gives me books and then he always wants them back. And I really like the covers and I think it makes me look smart having them scattered around the office. So, uh, I'll, I'll go buy the physical books off Amazon and then use them as sort of props. But I, I, I consume the content just with Audible. Yeah. yeah. I find that, I find that I have a, a much harder time internalizing the content. So if there's a great lesson to be learned and something that I feel mm -hmm. like I should really remember, if I read the physical book, it sticks with me sort of harder and longer than if I simply listen to it, in, uh, you know, uh, audible, or if I uh, read the Kindle version or read it on my phone with Google books or what, what have you. Yeah. It's called the forgetting curve. Hmm. So it's the rate at which you can forget information based on how you consumed it we forget at the rate of one bit per neuron per second. So you can go actually look up. It's a curve. It's a chart. Uh, you could say, I'm going to consume one hour of a speaker in person, and then it'll show you how the reduction of knowledge you'll have about that over a course of time. So it'll say, okay, well, in three months, you'll be able to remember the general topic and maybe one quote. Mm. But like at one week, you'll be able to remember like four of the subtopics. So Interesting. Yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, I just was one day I was sitting around, I was like, oh, man, I forget stuff. I wonder if there's research on how people forget. And I found it. I was like, oh, cool. Is that how <laughs> we forget? Yeah, that's terrific. Well, it must mean I have far fewer uh, neurons than a lot of people because I have a terrible memory. <laughs> well, I, I have a good one for you, a good question for you. I, first of all, I've been, how long, how long was, when did you start Moz? Uh, 2000, end of 2003, beginning of 04, the official day. So you're, you're who I'm thinking of. So I've been uh, paying attention to your work since like 14, 15. Oh, uh, I'm cool. I'm 30 now. Wow. So, Jeez. yeah. So when I was, you know, my dad taught me how to program. He was an engineer. He taught me how to program around the age of eight. And then I was programming for a couple of years. And then I started getting into internet web technologies. And I, rem I specifically remember you were one of the first pieces of content. And so when I was doing your show prep today, I was like, this is the guy because your face is very memorable. Oh, sure. So, yeah. And so I was paying attention to that. And I'm curious to know, like, how is, you're in the SEO world, you've been writing about SEO forever, and it's changing now. The way the we're consuming the internet's changing with a lot of the traffic going through Facebook and a a lot of the traffic now are going to be going through Alexa and things of that nature. So like, how is, is, do you ever see SEO not existing? Yeah, I can, I can imagine it. I actually think it's quite unlikely, but I can imagine mm -hmm. it. Uh, the reason is every time there's a big new technology that's going to supposedly completely cannibalize and eliminate some old technology, Kindle killing books, for example, or Amazon killing all of retail, um, or uh, 
you know, Snapchat killing Facebook or gosh, mobile killing desktop, right? That's actually probably my favorite example, right? Mobile is supposed to kill desktop. What actually happened? Desktop plateaued, but it remains uh, just under 50% of, of web traffic and has not, has not really budged in all these years that mobile is supposed to kill it. So it, it never, it never died, right? It just, it just stuck with us, just like books have, physical books have stuck with us. Um, I think there's very few technologies that actually get truly killed. Maybe the newspaper is an example, but magazines, magazines were supposed to be totally dead because of the internet. Guess what? Physical magazine sales, uh, still just as high, sort of at their height, right? So, so here's a question. Can the, can the SEO concept, let's say, I'm just playing hypothetical because sure. I don't know what else to do on the show. <laughs> um, if, if it were to go start going away, let's pretend it does die or whatever. I believe SEO Moz or the, the whole concept could pivot to the optimization for search within the network. So like optimizing your content for search within Facebook search or within Instagram's or Snapchat search, you guys could pivot that way. What do you think of that idea? Mm. Um, I don't love it, but I, I agree. I think, I think if Moz is a is going to survive long term, it'll have to be ready for upheaval. Uh, the nice thing about being a marketing focused software company is that you skate to where the puck has already gone instead of to where it's going. Um, I think I learned my lesson well on that one. If you if you try and market to a place where you think you know attention is going to be in a few years, uh, you actually find yourself. In a, in a poor position pretty often, and you can, it's fine to trail, right? It's absolutely fine to say, oh, lots of attention's going to Facebook. Let's see if this takes off. Oh, it did take off, but the network keeps changing, keeps changing, keeps changing. All right, now, you know, seven years in, maybe that's the right time to build a great social media suite of software like a, you know, a Hootsuite or a True Social Metrics or Brandwatch or somebody like that, right? And so um, laggards actually, at least in marketing software, tend to um, do better than the early adopter innovators, many of whom just die on the vine. So you pay attention to when the attention has like proven itself. Exactly. Like we, we try and watch where it's actually going as opposed to theorizing where it might go. Uh, right. So I have a blog post, for example, on, on, uh, on my personal blog, miles.com slash rand just recently in December, I got a bunch of data from Jumpshot who monitors web traffic through clickstream data. And so, mm -hmm. you know, my big question to them was, is search dying, right? Are, are there fewer searches being performed on Google, you know, now than there were a year ago or two years ago? Are we actually seeing Alexa or other kinds of voice search eat into that? Answer, no. Growth rate remains very similar from 2015 to 16, 2016 to 17, and 2017 into 2018. Uh, so that, that cannibalization doesn't look like it's happening yet, at least. You know, the other thing we were curious about is what about SEO? You know, Google's got all these crazy types of results in there now, the, the featured snippets and instant answers and all these answer boxes up at the top, the knowledge graph on the side, et cetera, et cetera. Is that cannibalizing uh, clicks, right? Are fewer people clicking on organic search results than they were a year ago or two years ago? Uh, and that answer was a little more complicated because basically that's been growing at a steady rate until just about the uh, middle of last year when on mobile devices, uh, Google started being so aggressive with some of these other kinds of content 
that we did see a decrease in the uh, clicks to organic. So there's a little bit less opportunity now in mobile SEO than there was, say, a year ago. Yeah, I noticed they really favored when I started adding the AMP to my site for the mobile search results mm. for just for me. Because we, we you know, came out and we are ranking for the term modern CTO. So when the site launched, I don't know, a couple months ago, we were like on page six. And then I, we're now we're the you know first result for it. Yeah. People linking to us and everything. But um, it was real interesting watching how watching it go up through the different pages, you know, over the course of time. And when I did the AMP thing, it just shoved all my AMP results like right to the front of the line. And then it took forever for the rest of my actual site to catch up the non AMP pages. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. I mean, we, so what we generally see is that AMP can get uh, better click through rates and better engagement rates. And that can sometimes lead to, you know, um, higher rankings. I, I think the the connection is second order, but it's there. I ultimately removed the AMP. <laughs> it was getting after my whole site, like I was doing it as an experiment. And I think I removed it from like 80% of my pages. Only text-based blog posts have mm -hmm. the AMP now because yeah. it's just, it's too much to maintain for too little benefit. Well, and if if you can, the ideal thing is to make your site screaming fast on your own, right? right? I mean, AMP is just a sort of easy cheat for people who can't be bothered to do all the work that's required uh, to make a very quick loading website. And so I, I'd certainly urge everyone, if it is at all possible, don't lean on AMP, which is a crutch. Do it yourself. Okay, so that you see AMP as the... Uh that's interesting because I don't have much experience with this, so I don't know. Yeah, I mean, the other thing is AMP means that Google controls a lot of the user experience around uh, how people engage with your site, right? So, you know, how the how the link copy-paste functions work, how the sharing functions work, you know, how it loads in the browser, all that kind of stuff. Um, you know, what, you, what information you can collect and what cookies you can drop and all sorts of things that, that they control. So... Yeah, I'd, I'd absolutely uh, suggest that that folks do it on their own if they can. Yeah, I noticed that there, I got a bump on the Facebook when I did the Facebook Instant Articles too. But when, when uh, just real quick, because we, we only have 10 minutes left here, being respectful of your time. Uh, we Like I said, our audience are mostly CTOs, lead developers. I'd say a good portion of them are co-founders. Yeah. Um, everything from just two people starting a project to having 600 or a thousand employees. So what sort of, I know that's a big spectrum, but do you have any quick advice that you would give as an expert with searching and, and being, you know, the wizard of Moz that you would give to these individuals? Well, I mean, I think that a good way to think about SEO is that it is a, it is a tactic. It's not a strategy, right? So I think that a lot of the time folks think about, um, SEO the wrong way, right? They think, how do I get my rankings up? How do I, you know, get more links and then get more search traffic? And some benefit will come from that. Surely, if I get more traffic from search engines, I'll, I'll benefit. And I think the right way to think about it is, this is our organizational goals, right? This is what we as a business need to accomplish. So, you know, you're a, you're a two-person uh, SaaS startup. I'm actually leaving Moz in a month and and going to be starting a two-person uh, SaaS business with uh, with a co-founder. Uh, so, so that's definitely top of mind for me, right? And one of the one of the Wait, big challenges. Wait, what is that? 
Sorry? What is it? I got to know what it is. Oh, it, it's not, we don't have anything yet, right? So um, it's just, yeah, me and a friend who are going to tinker until we until we get something launched. Um, okay. so I'll just tell everyone in, it's killer robots. Yeah, yeah. Ask me in six months. I'll be able to tell you more probably. Um, but, you know, for, for that, that group, the, um, one of the biggest things is how do I get my first customers? Right. And if you know that you have a problem that people are searching for or a set of problems that people search for, that your product can do a great job of solving, ranking for those problems and the problems leading up to them is a terrific way to go. Right. And so I think that's a strategic approach where you say, hey, customer growth is a, is a huge problem for us. Uh, SEO looks like one of the best tactics to solve it because we're serving an existing audience that's already performing queries for this problem set. Now, if you're solving a new problem that people don't really know that they have and that they're not searching for, then SEO is probably not the way to go, right? Then you, then you need other forms of you know, branding and broadcast media and potentially social media and influencer marketing, those types of things. You're a fan of influencer marketing? Uh, I am in the broad sense. I am not a fan of the, the very narrow definition of it that's that's come to exist where it means like you know uh buy a sponsored post from an instagram celebrity i I don't think that's a particularly excellent tactic but i do think that earning the awareness and trust and amplification of a group of influential people and publications in your space is a phenomenal way to grow attention right I fully agree with that because when, when uh, like a technology company says, oh, we're just going to go, you know, hashtag, see who's the top person for this and go pay them to wow. do a post. I'm like, well, no, what you need to do is you need to go find the quiet, smart people who, when they say something, there's a lot of weight behind it. Yes. And who, who do this, who do the loud people listen to the most? Like, I want to know who Marty Kagan reads right? Because he's real smart with, with writing uh, on his UI UX stuff. So I, I like, I want to know who he, I want to know the content consumers of the smart, like who, who is Rand's like the smartest person ever for SEO. I want to know who Rand is consuming. Um, I'm sure it's just a lot of your experiences from actually being a practitioner and doing it. But yeah, I think that there's definitely um, a big need to go beyond the vanity metrics of follower counts and oh, look yeah. at you know, what is the actual in influence uh, of, a, of a person? I, I also think that influencer marketing has gotten far too focused on individuals and not focused enough on publications. Uh, right. I think that a lot of smart people in many spaces read content from certain publications, right? They subscribe to email newsletters. They're subscribed to a YouTube channel. Uh, they listen to certain podcasts. And figuring those, they go to certain events, right? And figuring out what those are in your space oftentimes has more impact than, well, this person has the most followers and they have this word in their bio, so let's go pay them. Right. It's about reverse engineering your consumer and then going where they go to hang out. Exactly. So when you, so you're gonna obviously kill it with this startup because you say and do all the right things. So I'm well, very pumped about that. I, you know. It, so Joel, you and I both know startups uh, have a 90% failure rate. So I, I would say um, it is a risky venture. It's always a risky venture. You know, the only thing that 
that I'm very hopeful for is that I learned a lot of painful lessons the first time around and, and maybe I won't make those mistakes. So looking forward to making some new mistakes. Yeah. Well, I mean, I like to oversimplify things cause that always gets people yelling. Uh, <laughs> but if you, if you pay attention to where everybody's at and what they're demanding, like a lot of people will come and they'll pitch market like ideas for apps and stuff. And I'll say, how did you think of this? And like, well, I thought of it. I'll say, all right, well, how many people have you talked to about it? Well, well, none, but I Googled and there's 100,000 of these people in this job style in the U.S. economy. And if we get 0.01%, oh, like, yeah. no, you, 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 you pay, rather than coming up with an idea in your head, that's one way to do it. But that's, I think that has like a 99.999% failure rate. I see the ones that have less of a failure rate is, is the ones that say, oh, this is what everybody is demanding. Everybody already wants this. We don't have to convince anybody of this. All we have to do is fulfill the need. And yeah. that way you save on your marketing budget significantly. Cause now all you gotta do is tell people about it. You don't have to convince people of it. Yeah. I think it's actually incredibly smart to use uh, one of the processes in search engine optimization, which is keyword research, right? Looking at what are the terms and phrases that people search for and how often versus other things to say, oh my gosh, there's a huge demand for X, or there's a lot of people who have problem Y. Where are they geographically? What else do they search for? What answers are they finding right now? Oh, their problem is not getting solved. Look at the look at the Q and A in forums. Look at what Quora says. Look at what Stack Overflow is saying. Man, we we got to help these people. And by the way, you know, I know fifty of them personally and spend time with them. And I've done that job myself, and so I feel their pain. I think those entrepreneurs are ones with a with a much higher success rate. They're just not sexy to. Um, they're not sexy to venture investors typically, right? Because the the problem is usually too small and narrow. Uh, but I think if you're going for anything but a but a venture backed startup, uh, that is a great way to play it. And many of those actually turn into venture backed startups. Moz did. Do you have tools for that process you just mentioned about finding what people are searching for? And yeah, so uh, Moz has one that I worked on with a team called Keyword Explorer that I actually think is quite good. I don't I don't often endorse Moz's products. Because I feel a little, you know, dirty, sort of self-promotional, but but that one is actually probably the best one out there. I think many SEOs would say the same. Uh, if you're looking for free tools, Google's AdWords uh, Keyword Planner is free. You have to sign up for an account with them. You can use it. I wanted something professional because yeah. I I have uh, used it before, and it's just like uh... it's pretty terrible. I mean, Keyword Explorer yeah. is really good, right? You can search by all sorts of different ways and gives you tons of suggestions. The volume ranges are actually accurate instead of AdWords stuff. Uh, we yeah. buy that data from JumpShot, that clickstream provider I mentioned. And then you can, you know, you can click on things and add them to a list and see what's ranking and see how difficult it's going to be. So that, yeah, that's a, that's a good one. Uh, there's a, a good competitor called Ahrefs that also has a tool also called Keyword Explorer. Um, that's a, they have a good one too. I'm going to check this out. Uh, last question, we'll let you go because uh, it's looked like your time's here. You do a little bit of investing, right? It says you got some backstage capital tech stars type stuff. <laughs> I, I, how about I do very tiny, tiny amounts of investing. And now that I'm starting my own startup, I think I'm going to do zero investing. <laughs> but um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting thing. Just, just as the, uh, just, just curious, do you think we are in a, a little bit of a tech bubble yeah. Yeah, I do. I yeah, think that, I I do think too. That there's almost certainly more cash than there is 
great outcomes floating around. And I think it's going to take 10 or 15 years to see it. But I certainly, I certainly believe that's the case. Thank you so much for listening to the Modern CTO Podcast. Share this. Get the word out. Thank you guys so much. I couldn't do it without you. I appreciate it. You guys are the absolute best.